When I was a reserve deputy in the Special Ops Division, I worked often as part of the jail CERT team, cell extraction response team. And we would perform these cell extractions so that we could search for contraband. So we would pull the inmate out, make sure we were safe, and then go on in and look for weapons and drugs, cell phones, anything they were not supposed to have. The inmates at the time were issued standard blue inmate uniforms. If the inmate was issued an orange jumpsuit, it meant they might have a medical condition and you needed to use extreme caution. If they were issued a red jumpsuit, that meant they were dangerous and most often had extreme mental illness of some type. So my very first cell extraction ever was a very large man who was smiling, kind of that evil, kind of crazy look on his face. Like, you shouldn't be smiling. But he was looking at me like, you go ahead and unlock this, you know, cage if you want to, kind of thing. And the first thing that I noticed, he was wearing a red top and orange pants. And all I can think of is he is crazy as a rat in a coffee can from the hips up and from the hips down, he's eat up with something I don't want. So all I knew in that moment is I've got to use my wits about me to understand how I can get this man out of this cell safely for him and for me. And I rely on our experts because again, I may know somebody is suffering in some way, but I don't know what they're suffering from. So why do you bring in a psychiatrist? When you're working a cold case or any criminal investigation for that matter, it's more than means, motive, and opportunity. Those three things are critical. Those things are investigation 101. Those are the three things you need to understand and prove and apply. But there's always the why. And the why is the thing that keeps you up at night. Dr. Angie, this is where she comes into play. So when you have a case like this, a young mother of two that is murdered the way that Melissa Wolfenberger is murdered, you need a Dr. Angie to explain to you this killer. Why did this person kill? Why did they kill her? Why did they kill her in that manner? Those things you can use to go toward the motive, obviously, that's going to help in court to sway a jury. Motive is not needed in court, but it helps. It helps for a jury to understand what happened, why it happened. It also helps law enforcement to know who to interview, who to re-interview, how to go at somebody differently if they didn't get a confession the first time. It'll also help, perhaps, with prevention. So when you work enough domestic violent homicides, you start to see patterns. You start to say, wait a minute, this guy is saying the same thing to this victim that the past five perpetrators have said. It's almost like they have a playbook. You've heard more than one expert say that. It's straight out of the DV playbook. And the reason we say that is because we keep hearing it over and over and over. So Dr. Angie is an invaluable tool to us to understand the mind of this killer. 
She also has the other side of that coin. She can help understand the victim and the victim's family. And then she can help them get past it in some way, help them accept it a little bit, help them use it for good, perhaps even. But Dr. Angie, I've seen her. I've seen her with Melissa's mama. I've seen her with Melissa's sister. The moment she met them, she went to work on how to make them better, give them comfort, give them some type of, certainly not closure, but understanding and acceptance so they could get to the next place that they need to get to live their life better. Dr. Angie Arnold is a psychiatrist that went to medical school at the University of Tennessee, where she met her husband, who's also a doctor. She then completed her residency at Emory University here in Atlanta, and she's got a lot of expertise in a lot of different areas. For example, and just to name a few, because there's a lot of them, anxiety and depression, attention deficit disorder, work-life balance, cold cases, criminal behavior, issues leading to crime, suspect and victim-centered criminological review. Dr. Arnold, welcome to Zone 7. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. You and I have had some good times. <laughs> we have, haven't we, Cheryl? <laughs> I know on Melissa's case specifically, you have been available day and night. And not just for me, but you have reached out and tried to assist Tina and Norma and make sure they kind of understand the dynamics of everything that's happening. But I just wanted to say publicly how much I appreciate you. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much. If I were to look at this case like a wheel, each spoke of this wheel leads to some type of violence. Every person on this wheel has had tragedy. There's not one person that's escaped it. Not one. Not the parents, not the grandparents, not the children not the grandchildren. Right. You know, Cheryl, what that says to me is this family is very accustomed to this. You know, families develop their own identities as a whole family, okay? And apparently this is the identity that this family has developed for themselves. And that's going to be a very interesting fact as we move forward in the telling of their story. Carl basically framed this identity for himself, which by proxy now belonged to his children. And his wife. I mean, Cheryl, think about it. Everybody somehow got drawn into this, didn't they? Norma, his wife, got drawn into it, whether she wanted to or not. We know that she was, because because of her love that she felt for Carl, she was drawn into this. Then there's Tina and Melissa. And I know that we're going to talk specifically about Melissa today and how she felt the need to perhaps get away from this family dynamic. But then look at what she was drawn to. Look at what she was drawn to because it was all she knew. Here's what's fascinating to me. As I listen to you talk, it sounds so clear when you're describing it. But when you're living it, I would imagine just like any of us, when you find your person and you say, okay, let's get married or let's stay together. And you know, you're it for me that you do find yourself with some type of loyalty, whether it's misguided 
whether it's misunderstood by other people. Because you and I both have friends, because you and I have laughed about this before, and we may see their marriage from an outsider and go, how in the world could she put up with that? But it works for them. And they know how to make it work. And they know how to make it work, right. So every marriage is going to be a little different, whether it comes to money or how they raise their children or how they even live. I mean, they may live in two separate houses. They may never share money or bills, or they may, you know, have to rely on two signatures for every check. But again, that marriage is yours and it works for you. When you say, Cheryl, that people don't even, people aren't even aware of that. Maybe outsiders looking in see it more clearly than they do. But when you've come from a certain upbringing, as Melissa did, and then you reach out to find someone to live the rest of your life with, just because you're reaching out to try to find something and you think you have found it, it does not mean that that person is going to provide for you exactly what you were looking for. And so I think that that's oftentimes why people are blinded in their search for a partner in life. Because so Melissa goes out, she's looking for someone. She considered Chris her high school sweetheart, but they were very, very young when they first started getting together. They were, she was 16 and Chris was 17. They were so young, brains completely undeveloped. But Melissa was looking for something. And when you're looking for something, you can be so blinded about the person's misgivings. So you don't see them for who they really are because you're seeing them for who you want them to be. And Chris was her way out of her current family dynamic. We know that Melissa was a victim of crime when she was younger. And so in your way of, of talking about her, you think she's trying to escape that because she doesn't want to be hurt again? Yes. And I also believe she was looking for somebody to love her. When kids this young get into relationships where they just feel so much love for this person, you know, not everybody feels that way when they get into a, an initial relationship because they have love from their family of origin. But if you don't really have that love at your core, if that didn't develop at your core for whatever reason, then you're going to try to find it outside of your family. Okay. But like I said, you're looking for something. You don't really know what you're looking for, but you're looking for love. So that gives another person, that gives the person that you're finding it from the opportunity to do something that we call love bombing. Oh, I've heard you use that term because I remember the first time you tweeted something about it and I responded and said, oh, that sounds fantastic. Because to me, a love bomb sounds like, oh my gosh, you know, kissing and hugging and carrying on and gifts and happiness and like just this blast of wonderful happening. And you were like, girl, no. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be all of that because the person that is getting love bombed first of all, has typically been a target for this, okay? They're vulnerable to this love bombing, okay? And the person can come in, the, the love bomber can come in and just tell them how pretty they are and how wonderful they are. They don't maybe give them a flower, one little flower, right? And then they've got them caught, Cheryl. Then they've got them where they want them to be in the palm of their hand. Just a little bit of love bombing does it because the person is so devoid of that love and they're so vulnerable. 
Okay. So they get pulled in. It's exciting. They've never felt this feeling before. Okay. They've never felt this kind of love before. And so they're, they're trapped. They're brought into it. And typically the next thing that happens is the partner that they think is so wonderful starts to devalue them. And it can start in very small ways at first. For example, you know what? I don't, I don't like the color of your hair. I think, I think we need to, I think you need to cut your hair a little bit. And is that shirt really the shirt that you want to wear? You look a little frumpy in that shirt. Okay. Mm. They just start very gently because they know what gets to this person. Okay. They can also, so they start devaluing them. They start devaluing everything that that person appears to feel good about. And then they jump in with another love bomb. Okay. So the let's call her the victim. The victim is so confused by all of this because it's like playing Russian roulette with your emotions. So what is the victim going to do? She'll take the devaluation because she's hoping for that love bomb again. Mm-hmm. Okay. She craves that love bomb. And this is how someone can take a young person that's vulnerable away from her family of origin and entrap her in the life that he wants her to live with him. So let's start with Carl first. You've read the letters. You understand Carl as much as he's going to allow us to understand him right now. Carl will tell you that he's loyal, that his family comes first, and he would do anything to protect them and provide for them. All he wants is to be with them. And Carl believes that, Cheryl. Let's know Carl is saying that because he believes that with all of his heart. That is Carl's truth, okay? I I believe he does, too. There's no doubt in my mind. And I think he has convinced himself all of his past crimes were ultimately for his family. Yes, I believe he has convinced himself of that also. I think that's the only way he can live with himself, don't you? Uh, Quite possibly. But again, like you have said to me, somebody's perception is their reality. That is their truth. So if I perceive myself, yeah, I might be a gangster, but... I've never hurt my children. I've never hurt my wife. I've never hurt my mother. I have only protected them by harming other people is what he believes. And it makes it all okay. And it makes it all okay. Yes. And on some level, all of us are that way. I mean, I've heard you and Dr. John talk even about your medical school years. You were there for him. You uplifted him. You supported him. You cooked for him. You gave him comic relief. I've heard of some of your stories where he said he was so stressed out and then you would come home and you would say something so funny or you would say, oh, I just can't do that surgery again. (laughs) You know, that was was kind of nasty. And he'd be like, but baby, you're in medical school. I know, but I don't want to touch that again. You know, and y'all were so cute. But I mean, that's what it is. I've seen y'all with your children. I know right now, if you and I were out somewhere and somebody was fixing to talk about little John crazy, I might have to pull you off of him. Medical degree or not, you are a mama. So on some level, and I want to be real clear what I'm saying, on some level, we all understand Carl Patton. Yes. All of us have said, if anybody 
were to hurt a child of mine, I would just start burning stuff down. What about Carl and Norma and their relationship? Let's think about something real quickly, Cheryl. Carl and Norma, again, it's like this cycle that goes over and over again. They met when they were 15 years old. They had very strong feelings with each other, and he was the love of her life. So I want people to pay attention to these very strong feelings that people have for their significant other in this family, okay? It's not a little bit of a strong feeling. No. First of all, they're very young, 15-year-old. So I kind of feel like they're they're both kind of trying to escape something from their families of origin. And then they're drawn together. They're drawn together so intimately and tightly, and they feel so strongly for each other. Why is that? I believe it's because there was something missing in their upbringing. So it draws them very close. So what does that mean? Carl and Norma shared this closeness, didn't they? They shared this bond. And not only were they not going to let anything happen to their kids, they weren't going to let anything happen to each other. Yes. And we have to understand that, I believe, Cheryl, we have to understand that background when we talk about Norma and what she eventually did for Carl. Agreed. And here's one thing that I want everybody to know that's listening. You and I were at an event with Norma not too long ago and talking about this out loud and her hearing everything. And we don't pull any punches. We tell the truth. And, you know, Norma tells the truth. And there was a woman in the audience and she said, well, when you divorced him, was that hard on you? And Norma turned and looked at this woman like, are you crazy? Yeah. And Norma said, I'm married to him today. Mm -hmm. Like it blew Norma's mind that anybody would think they divorced. She was like, where did you get that in the story? I think about what Norma, what she has to go through. And like you said, and people not understanding her and they can't even understand that she didn't divorce this man. Cheryl, let us share with your audience that she goes to see him. She visits him often in jail. That is her husband. She is committed to this man, isn't she? She drives two hours there, spends two hours with him, and drives two hours home. I mean, that's like having a job. And he's never getting out of jail, right? I mean, if I had to put money somewhere, if we're, you know, in Vegas, he's never getting out. The level of commitment she has to him is enormous. They definitely have a bond with each other. I think they were married 25 years, 20, 27 years, and he's been in prison 20. She has almost been married to him as long with him in prison as she was married to him out of prison. And, you know, Cheryl, when we talk about this bond that she, that Norma and Carl have, I can only imagine that that means that they also have a very strong bond with the children that they brought onto this earth. Well, you met Tina. I know. And I've never seen Norma without Tina. Never. They're a very connected family. Tina is always with her mother, and she feels very strongly towards Melissa, who was her little sister. The family had quite a bond, which, again, explains to us why they've remained so connected, even after what their father did, because I think that they all 
believe as he did that he was doing what he did to protect the family. In Carl's letters, he'll even write and say, Tina May is a lot like me. And he says that she can be impatient, waiting for answers. She is not going to let anybody talk bad about her people. She is not going to accept anything negative about her mama or her daddy or her sister. Mm -hmm. To this day, she'll be the first one jumping. Let's get in it. If somebody's, you know, saying something rude or disrespectful or even slightly accurate, but they put it in a very negative slant. <laughs> She's, mm -hmm. you know. But again, it's that loyalty. And even if it's a little, not a little, even if it's misguided or flat out wrong in this particular situation, it's not to them. Well, I don't think it's wrong, Cheryl. I don't think any of us should look at it as wrong because that's their family. Right. It's not even, you know, it's their family. You're right. But I, I want to specifically say loyalty to the point you're going to help somebody throw a dead body in the river might be a little misguided. That's true. <laughs> you know, but again, Norma will tell you. I mean, I don't think she, she didn't try to talk him out of it. She's never told me that. She didn't try to stop him when the victim showed up. She's never told me that. She's never in any way said, we have got to go to the police, ever. So her loyalty for him went so far that when he told her, I'm going to lure these two people here, I'm going to shoot them, and then we're going to get rid of their bodies. Do you also feel, Cheryl, that, that she believed, as he did, that those people needed to be done away with? that he was doing the right thing? From what they have articulated, there's no doubt about it. There is at least one of them for sure. He was violent. He was abusive. And I mean across the board. He was abusive to Carl. He was abusive to children. He was abusive to nieces and nephews. He was abusive to wives. And we have that documented from court records. So we know that's true. That's not something they're making up. And Cheryl, what that means is they really felt like they were doing the right thing. So why wouldn't Norma have gone along with him? All right, let's talk about Christopher. Give me your best summation. I think I want to start by saying that this very loyal family unit never liked him. And they, and they didn't want Melissa with him. So they were very protective of Melissa. And then it seems as if when he and Melissa got together, he enticed Melissa to do a lot of trouble. He got her into a lot of trouble. And maybe that was exciting to her. I'm trying to, I, I've, I try to figure that out when I think about it. Maybe that, maybe that trouble was, was something that excited, exciting that she had never experienced before. Maybe that's why she was drawn to it. I just don't know. Because there was police involvement. I mean, it was bad, the stuff that they were doing, wasn't it, Cheryl? Well, Doc, this is one thing that blows my mind. I can't imagine a teenager not being petrified of Carl Patton. True. And you're talking about a teenager that convinces Carl Patton's daughter to sneak out and steal his car. <laughs> wow. And then they drove to Oklahoma. Now, let me tell you. I might go down the road and steal somebody's car. I'll take the preacher's car. 
I, I'll take a police officer's car, but I ain't going to steal Carl Pat's car. And Christopher Wolfenberger did that twice. That's amazing. And I'll tell you something, Cheryl, as much as you, I mean, I, I just wonder what was in Melissa's mind that she went along with this? Because I would think that she would be every bit as scared of Carl as Chris should be. Well, I think it also proves what Carl says. He never abused his children. He never laid a hand on them. But it seems like to me, Christopher must be one arrogant. So arrogant or just flat out stupid. I don't know, but definitely arrogant. Maybe Melissa thought, oh, my man has proven to my dad how manly he is. I don't know. That's why I'm asking you, because I can't. I don't know. Cheryl, I've always just kind of thought that maybe this was fun and exciting for her. I mean, she was only 15. Maybe she felt constrained by her family. You know, maybe she felt like they kind of had a thumb on her. (laughs) You mean like every teenager? (laughs) Exactly. And And this was her exciting way out with this guy who was interested in her. And so maybe the excitement overshadowed everything. I don't know why, but I just can't shake that feeling. He love-bombed her. She thought, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And you know what else? Was she that different than her mother? Because her mother went along with what Carl did, right? I've heard Norma say that. Norma told me, she said, Tina May absolutely is Carl's daughter. She said, but Melissa, my baby, was like me. And Norma's quiet. She's, you know, reserved. She is not going to walk in a room and be the life of the party. You may not even know she's there. And she, of course, loves her children, loves her grandchildren, loves her mama. You know, and I just, again, this whole thing to me, when you think about it, you've got Carl, who obviously committed five murders. You've got Norma, who helped him with at least two of them. You've got Melissa, who was murdered herself. You've got Christopher, that is really the only suspect on paper for the murder of Melissa. And then you've got Tina, whose father is a murderer, her mama, felony rule murder, her sister, who was murdered, her brother-in-law, who's a murderer. I mean, in all likelihood. So you. So if you think of Tina, it's like, my God, every single person in your intimate family group, in your just tight, patent family, is touched by murder personally. And, you know, you've got to kind of hand it to Tina that she hadn't cracked. Mm-hmm. Tina is tough. She has to be. Where's her support? It's like she's the support now. She's the support system now, isn't she? Yeah. Even the way she carries herself, Cheryl, don't you agree? When she walks into a room, the way she carries herself, it kind of makes her a little unapproachable. I love to go up and hug people when I see them. There aren't a lot of hugs going on there. She's a little guarded with that. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I called her one day and I was like, hey, Remind me of such and such. And she went, for what? Like immediately, and it was nothing. It wasn't an intrusive question. I didn't ask her a social security number. You know, it was something that was related to Carl. And I started laughing. And she went, why are you laughing? And I said, because I can't believe you of all people would have trust issues. Well, (laughs) she, of course, fell out laughing. 
Of course she has trust issues. She doesn't completely trust the police, but she needs them on her sister's case. She doesn't trust her brother-in-law, ex-brother-in-law, whatever he is. She doesn't completely trust, you know, his family. She doesn't completely trust where her niece and nephew fall. She doesn't completely trust me. I'm nobody to her. She doesn't completely trust the other experts. Who are they? They say they're not going to do this, that, and the other, but what do I know? So that's her world, literally. I agree with you, Cheryl, because I've always, I've often gotten that vibe from her. And so I just, I, I very respectfully step back a little bit because I don't ever want her to think that I'm coming on too strong. I feel like it's a little bit easier to speak to Norma, her mother, but they're both a little guarded as they should be. Like you said, for how long did it, did nobody even wanted to touch this case because they didn't feel like it was anything to touch? And it's so complicated and it's got so many, so many parts to it. I imagine they feel like they've just been hanging out there by themselves this whole time. And then here's the other piece. You have the family members that are victims of Carl Patton. Oh, yeah. And that's a whole nother level because all of these folks were intertwined at one point. They were all friends. They were all family members. So Carl was related to Fred and Marie, and then kind of by proxy, Betty Joe, And then you've got Joe Cleveland was his best friend. So Joe Cleveland is in and out of the house. Fred is in and out of the house. They all barbecue. They all go camping. They all know each other. Tina knew all of these people. Nobody's here to argue the crimes of Carl Patton, but when we Look at what happened to Melissa. One thing I want you to address that wakes me up at night sometimes, and I just have to think about it for hours and hours and hours, is her missing torso. So what does that say to you? I'm telling you, I lay awake at night thinking about that also. There are several things I wonder. Why would someone take a torso? What could her torso have been hiding her tor- she's a female. Her torso could have had a baby in it. And to me, that would be the ultimate sign of hatred and, and disrespect by whoever murdered her, if there was a baby in her torso. So that's always my primary thing that I go to. I just wonder if she was pregnant. My theory has been that she was pregnant, and my hope is that the torso was buried So there was some respect, there was some love, there was some, we're going to honor them. But if that's not the case, and it was taken to another location for another reason, that changes this whole thing. And do you think there's even an ounce of a chance that the torso will ever be located? Oh, I always think there's a chance. And here's the reason I do. Whoever this was obviously knew Action Glass, They knew Brookline. They knew Avon Avenue. I don't think the torso was far. And I have searched for it myself. Uh, We had Trace come out there with canines. Both canines hit on an area, and they only hit on body decomp. We had a geographical profile done, which suggests the same thing, that it's close. So I don't believe 
that the killer would risk transporting the largest piece of that body, even in a trash bag, bodily fluid is going to leak out. And so I don't think he's going to risk getting pulled over, you know, something falling off, something spraying on another vehicle behind him. I just don't think he would, he would risk that. So I think whatever was done was done right there in a close area. It is important to note that Christopher Wolfenberger has denied any involvement in Melissa's murder. You know something that's just been on my mind this whole time? So she's already got two children, right? So apparently they, it didn't bother them to have children, right? If she was pregnant, why would her husband have been the one that killed her? And the only thing I can come up with is if she was pregnant with someone else's baby. Correct. So we do know that there was an affair that was spoken about as though it were fact. I mean, to me, that makes that makes sense because a man like this, Chris, could never get over psychologically, the fact that his wife was pregnant with another man's child. And I think that would be his motive for killing her. And again, when you have a family like this and dynamics like they were living with, it's not unusual that you have more than one motive. That would be one. Having a third baby when you're already struggling financially could be another. And then the other thing that could very well be a motive is she was due to go to court to testify against him in a family violence charge, days before she went missing. Well, we all know that when you've got a family violence charge and somebody's talking about restraining orders and knocking you out of the house and taking your children, that could be a very dangerous time. And literally, I'm not at all exaggerating. It was days. When they served the notice for her to come to court, I believe she was already dead. Oh, my gosh. Because she never answered it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she never showed up for court either. Wow. And so there had been there had been some history, of course, of violence between Melissa and Chris, right? Also, Norma and Tina didn't really, weren't, they weren't really allowed to see Melissa that much and her children that much, were they? So that means there was some isolation going on. Someone was isolating Melissa from her family of origin. Straight out of the playbook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is Domestic Violence 101. And I want your listeners to hear that. This It's not something that you ignore. If you're being isolated, that is a red flag all day long. Oh, honey, keep going. Tell them the truth. Tell them all of it. It's a red flag. And, you know, so many people are like, oh, well, it's it's no big deal. You know, I don't really get to see my friends anymore. And that he doesn't really let me call my mom every day. That is called isolation. And he is chipping away at you so that you can be his prisoner. And that's what you ultimately are. You know, another big point that I want to make today on this podcast, Cheryl, I want women out there to know that if you choose to be in a relationship with a narcissist, okay, and even if you figure out that they're a narcissist, if whatever way you have chosen that you're going to be in a relationship with a narcissist, you must then decide that you are an object. You are an object that that person does not feel love for. 
So all the times that you that you say to yourself, I don't know, why did he love me? Why does he talk to me like this? Why does he treat me like this? And certainly this story that we're telling today is the ultimate example of a narcissist doing something to his object wife, and that is to ultimately get rid of her. That's what a narcissist does, Cheryl. Their ultimate goal is to get rid of their object. And here's the thing that blows my mind, because this, again, if you're looking at the abuser's playbook, victims usually respond the same way, too. And this is something that drives me absolutely crazy. If your mama, your best friend, your neighbor, your doctor, your third grade teacher, if every single person is telling you the same thing, you won't listen to them. They're all wrong. They're all against your love. They just want you not to be with the person you're meant to be with. The only person they're going to listen to is that abuser. Well, because he's done such a good job of laying down a new foundation for you. Okay. And I'm Cheryl, I'm telling you, I cannot tell you how many patients I take care of in all different walks of life that are in relationships like this, where they have been gaslighted. So what happens is you say one thing and the and the person goes, well, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. Gaslighting. Okay. And then you start to doubt everything you think. You start to, what, I wasn't out with another woman, but I saw her name in your phone. No, you didn't. And, and you start to question the very foundation of, of everything. Okay. But they started out with that love bombing, which you might not have gotten from anybody else. Then they devalue you a little bit and the devaluation, they do the devaluation, Cheryl, so that you won't leave them. Okay. Because they make you feel like, well, nobody else is going to love you. You can't go anywhere else. And then they start to make you doubt all of the thoughts that go through your head. And I'm telling you, Cheryl, this stuff works. It works. Everyone out there that is listening to this podcast should go out and read some sort of book about narcissism and trauma bonds. Those are the two biggest things you should read about before you get into any relationship. And you've got to steer yourself away from those kinds of relationships. And I'll tell you, it's hard because, Cheryl, I've got, I think half of my practice has this problem going on. Is that crazy? It's hard to pull women away from it. It's very hard. And and it's, you know, they'll typically stay in a relationship for a good 20 years before they finally just can't take it anymore and they're and they're old enough typically to see how it's affecting their own children that they have now and then they they finally get the strength to get out of that relationship but it can it can last for years but poor Melissa didn't have a chance did she she didn't have a chance because i think her narcissist was probably also a sociopath which just takes it to another level i mean that's why we think that he's guilty of this. And you know, that's the thing. Melissa had a known killer tell her this guy's no good for you. Melissa had a known killer whoop his behind in public once. And still, she went back to him. Yeah, because he made her feel some sort of love 
some sort of romanticized love, and she was scared of him. I'm telling you, there was probably domestic violence going on in there, intimate partner violence, call it whatever you want. But she was, I think she was probably scared of him too. So she had this funny back and forth where she loved him and she was scared of him. And he would, he would make her fearful, but then the next day he would do something that made her feel that love again. And it's a bond. It's, it's, that's why it's called a trauma bond. And it's so hard for people to unweave themselves from it. And then he's isolating her. So the only person, people she has to talk to, she's taking care of these two babies. God only knows if she was suffering from postpartum depression after that also, which puts a whole nother kink in the chain. Okay. And she can't even talk to her own mother because she's been isolated from her own mother. Dr. Arnold, do you have any advice that you want to give right now to everybody listening? You know what, Cheryl? I got to tell you, I believe that every young girl, and I take care of a lot of young girls that are in college and whatnot, you can have fun all day long, but educate yourself about narcissists. And if you're having a hard time with your with your family of origin, go talk to a professional about it. Don't allow somebody else to come in your life and try to fix that for you because there's a reason that you're having that trouble and get to the root of what that trouble is. Okay. And the best way to do that is to talk to a good therapist about that. Do that for yourself. You deserve that. And while you're doing it, educate yourself on narcissistic abuse and narcissistic trauma. It's the best thing I believe that young women can do for themselves to prevent a horrific outcome like Melissa suffered. Dr. Arnold, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for your advice. And thank you for the way you take care of so many people. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm going to end Zone 7 the way I always do with a quote. And this comes from Dr. Oz, who had me on his show twice for two different cold cases. And after airing on his show, both were solved. And Dr. Oz says, and I quote, People change based on what they feel more than what they know. And I don't think that could be any more accurate than talking about Melissa Wolfenberger. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.